Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered nonetheless. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery include John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 169, an interview with Nancy Cress. Welcome, Nancy. Welcome. I'm glad to be here. Oh, I am thrilled. I want you to know that I have been your devoted fan curl since Beggars in Spain. <laughs> you had the first speculative fiction, science fiction, that I'd ever read about something so basic and so primal to being a human being that I had ever read. Well, it's about people who are genetically engineered to not need to sleep. And I wrote it out of jealousy because I need at least eight hours sleep. Um, and I know people who get by on four or five night after night and they get more life than I do. So I was jealous. I, I can see that jealousy, but you took it in a, in a great way. That's I've always considered you one of the greats of science fiction for taking it and saying, okay, if somebody didn't need to sleep, what else is possible? What could happen? Would they, and you know, could they, the non-sleepers take over the world? So out there, if you haven't read it, you have to rush out and buy it right away. But <laughs> wow, it was, I, you know, you think about, well, if then, and if then, but you, you have this beautiful way of digging all of the science out of everything. And I love that about you. Well, thank you. Although actually, Beggars in Spain doesn't have as much hard science as my later works. I, if I were writing it now, there's a lot more known about the mechanisms of sleep. Not everything, because it's still pretty much a mystery, but there's more known. And I would have included it. But at that point, I wasn't writing really hard SF. So there isn't as much science in there as, as there is in my later work. Well, whether you, I, I have to interject here that the level uh, and I know we're going to cover this later, the level of science you did put in and the breadth of speculation you had about not just, well, they get an extra four hours, they'll be four hours ahead every day compared to someone who only sleeps four hours as the first tycoon. By the way, excellent tycoon there. Oh, my God. <laughs> Narcissistic personality type to a T. The wife looking slightly worn out. The but even their communication modes began to differ, and then you show the rifts in them. You really did a wonderful societal sociological study of human tribalism as the species splits, which of of course is all speculative because it, obviously you didn't have research backing in twenty uh, students to study. But it, I am also totally a fanboy because you did cover all the possible science there, or at least touched on it. If you'd covered all of it, it would have been as Mafian book in 18 um, volumes. So. Oh, thank you, Jen. It also had a bit of, you prepped me in that book for Malcolm Gladwell later had a talk that he gave on, uh, how did he call it? The, Seuss is, I'll edit myself to make this better. The, the, operationalization of assets, of talking about kids that are born in the first January to May get a bigger advantage because they have that many more months of development in their brain and their bodies as opposed to kids that were born October to December that get stuck in the same grade level. But he went through and he looked at all of the professional athletes that, you know, the NHL, the NFL, the, you know, all of them and said, where are the majority of their birthdays and found the majority of them were January to April 
just because of that few months of development and maybe that few months uh, less sleep, more learning. So it, it really kind of made your theory pan out. I read that essay by Gladwell. I found it very interesting. But I had already made the decision because I used to teach the element, elementary school, fourth grade, before before I um, got married and had my children. I made the decision to hold my son, who was born in November, exactly on the cutoff for school, back a year and start him so that he would be the oldest kid in his class and not the youngest one. As it turned out, he wasn't interested in sports at all anyway. But he <laughs> knows that at the time. And maybe it is more physiological than, than brain development because we can't count it. But you also had a whole bunch of stories in Corey and Sean Weaver's Young Explorers Adventure Guide series. And I love those books because, one, there's stories for me in there, too. But they wrote really well for middle grades. So I could tell that you you love kids. You must love kids because you wrote such interesting stories with girl about girls in science fiction, too. Well, thank you again. Yes, I enjoy doing those. Because I had taught the fourth grade for four years, that age group, 9-10, um, is very familiar to me. And I was skewing my stories, I think a little younger than many of the other books in there. I was writing for the 8, 9, 10-year-olds, whereas many of the stories in there, since middle grade is 8 to 12, are skewed a little bit for the older. And I was kind of glad that Nia's stories, because all five of them are about the same character. Right. <laughs> she goes through various problems. She was a lot of fun to develop. She's one of those spiky little girls that doesn't believe what she's told and has to test it for herself. I, I loved it, too. I wrote about Olivia, which was uh, kind of a twist on Oliver Twist. So I, I took as if Oliver Twist ran around with the Fagan program up in space. So <laughs> That's a good idea. But this brings me to your latest book, which I have to say, you may owe me a few hours of sleep because Observer, I couldn't put it down. Wow. <laughs> well, thank you. I wrote this with Dr. Robert Lanza, um, an eminent scientist. In fact, in 2014, Time magazine declared him one of the 100 most influential people in the world for his work on stem cell research. But this book is not connected the stem cell research at all, as you already know, because you've read it. <laughs> you made me feel smart and well-read <laughs> because you had a most beautiful overlap of philosophy, quantum physics, theories of cosmological reactions. And I, I had just finished a few, a couple of years ago, run into protonic entanglement. Then, you know, I was a philosophy major briefly. Is consciousness defined by observing? How does consciousness affect a quantum universe? Oh, my God. I had the greatest geek reaction to this ever. I loved this book. Well, thank you so much. Um, all of those things are naturally connected, um, interconnected. So it wasn't really um, a huge leap to put them together in a novel. And the ideas behind consciousness, those particular ideas are, are Robert Lanza's and the characters and situation and development are mine. And we brought different things to the book. So it was an interesting experience because I've never collaborated on a novel before. And it was an interesting experience. And at some points we disagreed. But the major challenge we faced was getting that science in there without slowing down the story too much. And I know that for some readers, it may already be a little slow because we had to start all the way back with 
the double slit experiment, since unlike you, not everybody is familiar with the basics of quantum physics. I don't so, understand. Why are they not familiar with Do they not follow <laughs> Dr. Chanda Prescott Weinstein? <laughs> Do they not follow Stephen Hawking? <laughs> Stephen Hawking, this is fascinating stuff, man. I think okay, so. Okay, calm down, Jeannie. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a science groupie, John, my whole life, and I still am. <laughs> Well, tell us, I, because everybody's interested out there in the idea of, hey, man, she collaborated with real scientists. Did you reach out to him? Did he reach out to you? Did you happen to be in a bar together? How did that happen? Um, no, none of the above. Dr. Lanzabab wanted to embody his ideas, which had already been in three and now four nonfiction books, into a novel in the hopes of reaching yet a different audience. But he knew no novelists. I don't think he reads a lot of fiction and no science fiction. <laughs> so the agent for this book, his agent, um, who was a little more knowledgeable, reached out and said, actually, first to my husband, Jack Skillingstead, because he had written a book that dealt with alternate versions of reality called The Chaos Function, an extremely good book, incidentally. And Jack was not interested, but he said, well, maybe my wife would be. So that's how we ended up uh, talking to each other on the phone in a three-way conversation with the agent and Bob and me for um, two or three conversations. And then we both decided we wanted to do this. That's fantastic. I mean, it, who doesn't, I dream of these things. But. <laughs> no, it, it's truly interesting. So it's, how do you, how do you collaborate? Does he, did he just give you all his, you, you sketched it out? Tell us about, because we've talked to a lot of different people about how they put their novel together. Did you just sit and talk to him at first, or did you have to read his work? How's the process work collaborating like that? I read all three of his nonfiction books to make sure that I mastered the basics of biocentrism, which is a complicated theory. And when I was had that, I wrote a first draft, uh, the first part of the first draft, of 30,000 words. And I sent it to Bob and he hated it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> he didn't like the character. He didn't like the situation. It was not what he had in mind. And we hadn't really talked about what he, he would have in mind fictionally, because I don't think he had any real ideas of how to go about doing that. He's a, he's a scientist. His ideas were the science. So then we had the conversation we probably should have had in the first place. And I pitched another set of characters, which are the ones in the book, um, Carol, her sister, Ellen, um, Ellen's children, and the situation in the Cayman Islands where the book takes place. And that one he liked. So I would write it in chunks of about, oh, I don't know, 10,000 words, eight, 10, send it to Bob and to the agent who was very much involved in this. They would go over it and then we would have a three-way conversation with suggestions and um, difficulties they perceived and questions that I had. And then I would rewrite it. And then when that was approved, I'd go on to the next chunk. And we worked that way through the whole thing. And it wasn't just that Bob was giving me the science, which he was, and correcting the things I had in the science, which was wrong, but also the three of us developed plot ideas together as well. And it some of those required rewriting and changing, but it, it generally, once we had the initial situation and a viable working method, the book moved along with only minor glitches. 
That is a fascinating process. We, in our in our book group, our writing group, we we frequently have the should we do it chapter by chapter or should we do bigger chunks and then digest it and talk about it. So, I love that it's you know ten thousand words at a time. I mean that's a lot. No, eight but, to ten. But see, it's different yeah. if you have two writers. But yeah. what you have here is a scientist who's written nonfiction, but not fiction, and a fiction writer who is not a scientist. So I think the process, as you discuss in your group, of chapter by chapter turnaround would work for two writers, but not in, a, not in our situation. Right, right. But what I love that you brought to it is it could have been buried. I mean, I can see easily that, that books like this could have gotten so buried in the science that you lost it. But you make every single character in there alive. And that's what I always love about your books. And for anybody out there who has not had the joy of picking up Nancy's books, rush right out there because every single character is alive from her sister that's caring for two daughters, you know, one that doesn't want to resent her somewhat disabled sister, but yet you, you do a little bit. There's a little bit of dysfunction here and there, certainly some neurodivergence. And all of the different scientists, you make them all real. I mean, the whole book is told from two different perspectives mostly Caro's, and for those that haven't, you know, watched it, the 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 science, I kind of viewed it as your your other writer in a lot of ways. He was your, you know, the pure math and theoretical um, physicist part of it. Yes, the, the two characters are Caroline Soames Watkins, who is a fledgling neurosurgeon doing her fellowship years. When she runs into a situation where she reports a superior for sexual misconduct. And this ends up tanking her career partly yeah. because it causes an online shitstorm um, because it's been taken up by an organization yeah. similar to 4chan or 8chan. I probably shouldn't say that, but it is. Yeah, well, we, we know it's out there. We don't need to reference it. Everybody's afraid of it. <laughs> yes. And um, she doesn't know what to do because she's partly the support of her sister with her sister, who is a single mother with two kids, one of them profoundly disabled. And she accepts an invitation from a great uncle she's never met, who's a Nobel laureate who is running some kind of mysterious research facility in the Cayman Islands. She accepts an invitation to go and look because he requires a neurosurgeon for his hospital. And that's the, that's the setup for the book. And it goes on from there. The other major character is, the, is a physicist, the elderly Dr. George Weigert, who, and if you were a philosophy major, this will interest you. I named George after George Barclay, the philosopher. Ah. <laughs> who also had the idea that we only know what information comes through our senses and we can't ever be sure what is really out there. Um, yes, indeed. <laughs> I named George Weigert after that. And Green in a jar. He, <laughs> he um, yeah, something like that. Thank you, John. George Weigert becomes the other point of view character. And he and Carol form an unlikely bond. Um her own father is gone when she was very young. So Weigert almost becomes a father figure to her. 
But it isn't like she needs a, a, a protector. She's a, another of my spiky ladies, although not as spiky as she was in the first draft, I have to say. But she was another of the spiky ladies. And what she encounters down there is what forms the spine of the book, as well as the work that's being done down there and the consequences of that work, both positive and negative. I Where you went with it, it was a little bit, you wrote it beautifully viscerally of like, if we create our reality the idea that somebody would immediately try to monetize and profit off the negative aspects was like, oh yeah, of course they would. And and that's what I loved about it is is you you had an ability in this plot to say, what is the worst case scenario that that a pure scientist with a love of learning and love could discover if somebody had taken their work and turned it into something ugly and are, are they it kind of it's what is real what is not real well if they're not real i can do this i don't think they're real and that is it was very visceral and i also enjoyed how you took that flurry of social media problem at the beginning and brought it secularly in at the end as well and that made it like i said it was almost too real but it was really beautiful of how you engineered that plot line Social media has become so much a part of our lives, especially for the younger generation. And I'm not sure you can write a future novel of any kind now, unless you want to go back to a dystopia where we've lost civilization, that doesn't include the effects of social media, because it has changed pretty much everything in, in the country, especially, again, for young people, but also in politics, as I'm sure everybody is aware. Mm-hmm. In a way, you when you bring it in at the end of saying that this can happen, hey, don't go there. Because there are crazy people out there that have money and a willingness to go do crazy-ass things. And that is, you know, it, in a way, the underlying message for me was it is one of the dangers of science because there's always been disbelievers. I mean, Galileo got in trouble with the church. You know, now you have what the latest thinker, hey, we could... We can explore this wonderful, amazing new idea that makes it better for all of humanity that, that Weigert's enjoying. And then, yeah, but you have somebody who's willing to come along and and destroy it on social media and make another big storm and do terrible things. And it is the danger. I mean, it's sort of like the what is the great minds reaching the opposition of the mediocre? Science has always, always been a double-edged sword. The day that humankind discovered fire, the crime of arson became a possibility. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think one of the movies that I do like in science fiction is 2001. Um, I saw it when it was first released in 1968. And I went, oh, my God, wow. And even in that opening scene with the apes, he discovers a hand tool. And the first thing he uses it for is to club the other ape to death. <laughs> exactly. Well, is a lot of science fiction movies, they they make science the equivalent of a fan. Is there a difference between science fiction and fantasy in movies is such an interesting question. Yeah, and I, I really have a grudge against most science fiction movies. There are ones like 2001 that are clearly meant to be symbolic, and I'm okay with that. And there are ones like Her that actually explore in a fairly reasonable way things that could happen and I certainly am fine with that. But then there's a whole huge bunch that just think that science is like some kind of wayward magic. And they try to embed it in a realistic 
framework and it just doesn't work. It's stupid. Let me give you two examples. I warned I was going to be this rant. <laughs> I love this rant. Go for it. Moon. They're, do, they're mining, mining some strange sort of ore on the moon. And instead of sending up three guys with hazard pay, which I know they can do because in the middle of the movie, we find out that the corporate guys can go up in a pod and back in a pod. So that could easily be done. Instead of doing that, they have an underground basement full of clones, which they replace when one guy dies and they have to jam every all re- reception for radio broadcasts and everything else coming from earth, because he might discover that he's not the original person and so much time has passed, passed and they have to fake um, transmissions from his family. And it's stupid. Send up three guys with hazard pay. And <laughs> even worse is, is um, transcendence. I mean, come on. The only thing that can escape a black hole is Hawking radiation and Matthew McConaughey. Give me a break. I, well, yeah. he's kind of like a Hawking. He's particle. kind of like Hawking radiation. He's yeah. that hot. <laughs> I really get upset about about it because there are so many stories that can be told. I liked The Martian. Both the filmmaker and Andy Weir in the book are very frank about the fact that there is one thing up front that isn't going to happen. There is not enough air pressure on Mars to create the kind of sandstorm that can topple over a rocket and prevent it from leaving. But once you grant that, Everything else actually follows. I was at a luncheon once and I was sitting next to um, Ed Yu, one of, an astronaut who had spent time up on the ISS. And we were talking about the Martian. And he said that he really, really was blown away by it. He really liked it, given that one thing. And I'm willing to grant one thing up front, but I'm not willing to grant, as in transcendence, that the climax depends on a perversion of science. Right, right. And I suppose you could, I mean, my brain can twist it around and say, we we know that solar flares cause big action here. They could have, instead of just hand waving it, they could have added a little something saying it's incoming, it might be strong. Like we have an atmospheric current that's hitting California right now to date when this podcast is. And it's something none of us have really seen this much rain in Southern and Northern California in our lives. And we're all a little scared, but... (laughs) It's a one in a lifetime thing, but we we could see that they could have done that in the Martian. They could have, but they also needed him to have a windstorm strong enough to drive whatever that was that's yeah object through his suit and Mm -hmm. uh, knock him out so that he couldn't join the the leaving people. But they might have gotten around to that that too. But in general, I think Andy Weir does a good job of speaking to to the known. The known scientist, and it was inventive. Just when I was thinking, okay, now what is he going to do? And he would come up with something else that I hadn't thought of. Yeah. One of the amazing things about that book, and this is a, a side note, obviously, is that it is, in a way, very crowdsourced because he wrote most of his early books online. And given that he is a uh, technical engineer, had a lot of technical engineers following along. I mean, all you have to do is go to the Kerbal or the now Artemis uh, news groups and say, hey, what about this? And so he incorporated a lot of what in theory we would call notes and in other places you might call edits, but most people call carping and criticism. And he actually winnowed through that or, or worked through that and found all the good information and got the people who complained about things arguing with each other until the real science fell out of it, if you look at his process. 
That's very um, interesting, John. I didn't know that. That's very it, interesting. It, well, I, it, he can pull from his roots. Uh, it looks to me, based on what you've said and what I've, I've read, that your experience in uh, handling fourth grade dynamics is what allowed you to survive the great red workshop that killed so many. It's <laughs> a joke, guys, when George R.R. R. Martin gave it. I am actually, I did not know about Observer until we started preparing for this podcast. And it is, I have to say, incredibly enheartening to discover that you can order the book, which has been released very recently, and they will donate to the Salk Foundation to do science research. So when you say you're not a scientist, you're a writer, you are a fantastic, amazing uh, teacher writing and, and writer, obviously, but you're no slouch on the science department either. Of course, look at who you're comparing yourself to. Oh my God. I had to really work to master the, the science that I know. Um, I had very little science in college and high school was a long, long time ago. But I read and I find that there are books that are an enormous help. When I was writing the probability series, which is very heavy on physics, um, Brian Greene's wonderful book, The Elegant Universe, and in the follow-ups, The Fabric of the, the, let's see, The Fabric of the Cosmos. There's two more he wrote. Um, My copy is all not only dog-eared, but it's underlined and there's notes in the margin and there's little bits of post-its stuck on the pages because that's where I learned enough physics to be able to write the probability series, probability moon, probability sun, and probability space. Um, and, And the same is true with genetic engineering. I have to read and read and read because I'm not trained. Well, if, if there's anything, I survived clinical neuroscience, which included genetics back in college, and I would still have to go say, what is the latest? Because things I learned, um, we're not going to say how many decades ago, are may not be true anymore either. So oh, yeah. how, change is so fast. How do you stay relevant? Yeah. It, I have a book that just came out that I'm going to be reading, The Song of the Cell. Um, and I can't pronounce the author's name, but I'll make a quick try at it because he's so good at this. He wrote the book, The Gene, Siddhartha Mukherjee, M-U-K-H-E-R-J-E-E. My book club is reading it next, and I'm really looking forward to it. But I also know that during the year that this book was probably in production and distribution, that some of the science in here may have already changed. Yeah, it's a brand new book. Well, I feel you. I mean, and it was published in October last year. (laughs) Yes. So, I I have my own. You know, I think we all sit and watch different things. Like my friends that are lawyers say Boston Legal, and they just shake their heads and say, "It's like say it's like Star Trek." You have to just ignore a little bit of the hand waving. I I'm in information security, so it's very hard to watch the movie Sneakers or. There was one CSI, and I know we've mentioned it before on the episode, when they're not typing fast enough and somebody pushes them aside and two of them are typing on the same keyboard. And I want everybody to look at that and say, no, no. (laughs) Sneakers was a while ago, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair. But even when it came out, it was like, no. I mean, I've always appreciated that William Gibson at least knew more about the concepts than a lot of 
in, in computer science than people had before with Neuromancer and some of the others. And there's an argument that Johnny Mnemonic kind of led the way to Observer for you in terms of prepping all of us readers out there in the world. Okay, something could be implanted. Okay, this could change things. Okay, how your brain interacts with science at least already exists as a concept that this could build on. Yes, and Bill Gibson also knew enough not to, because he's not a scientist either, not to try to stick in some detailed science. Yeah, he he kept it over the surface and he used the concepts, which is, you know, for for would be science fiction authors out there, I think your your path is clear. Pick up the science, read it, do your best. How did you say that, Nancy? I like your little uh, underlying and putting notes in the margins. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Margins, sticky notes, uh, little arrows going to another page, exclamation points, underlining all of it. <laughs> I, I often I usually read fiction on the Kindle because the book is the condo is already bursting with too many books. But when a science book, I can't do it on the Kindle. I want the, the copy and I want it on enduring acid free paper so I can really mark it up. I love it. Are you working on anything uh, future with this? Uh, are we going to have a second observer or moving onward? Or I don't think so. I, Bob Lanza hasn't mentioned anything about it. And even if he did, I'm not sure I want to do it again. I, I haven't decided, but it isn't coming up. The book, I think it's doing fairly well. I don't look at reviews. I look at PW and I look at uh, Kirkus and places like that, but I don't track my Amazon ranking or anything like that. My husband does, however, <laughs> and he tells me sometimes. So apparently it's doing okay. It, it is out there. I want to put a plug out there for all of you readers. If you enjoy things on Amazon, or even if you don't enjoy them on Amazon, but you want this author to keep writing things, it actually does help to go out and put a rating. And, and this is where I'm going to say the dark truth is, even if you write one star, I hated it, it's still a rating which helps them get into a whole set of, if you get 50 ratings of any kind, it gets recommended. So if you're reading a book and it makes you think or it makes you angry or it makes you feel in any way, please go put an Amazon rating on it. Oh, thank you. I didn't even know that. Yeah. I always tell everybody, it's like even the people out there, and it seems like they're trying to, I've read a few books and we've interviewed where somebody out there is like, I hate this. This says bad things about our president. I mean, you can imagine what those books were. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if they realize that even by giving it a one rating, oh, this was terrible. I want to say thank you very much for your input. I value your opinion. Please get all of your friends to do likewise, because uh, all that matters is that 50 plus 200 plus people have read the book, bought the book and ranked the book. Hmm then suddenly you get promoted. So that's how that algorithm works. Oh, okay. I know remarkably, for a science fiction writer, I'm really ignorant about computers and about the whole digital world. You may have noticed that I almost never write stories based on computers um, because I'm just, I'm very ignorant. And not only ignorant, it really isn't something that interests me that much. The, the questions of the effects of social media interest me. Yeah. But the actual innards don't interest me the way the innards of genetic engineering interest me, which interests me a lot. Yeah. And I'm going to take this advantage to give a plug to just one of my previous works, if I may. Please do. Okay. This is a standalone novella from Tachyon called Sea Change, S-E-A, Change. And it concerns genetic engineering and environmental concerns in the northwest corner of Washington where the Canalt tribe lives. It also concerns 
problems in the ocean because the Canal Tribe for thousands of years has survived on salmon. And there are problems with the ocean, large dead spots now that are partly called by algae blooms, which in turn are caused by fertilizer washing down in the rivers into the ocean. That's the science. There is, of course, a story, and it's a story about genetic engineering and its risks as with as with observer both its risks and its potential gains and also with observer although less so but certainly with beggars in spain the attempts to control this by the government and the society as a whole well i'm going to have to rush right out and buy sea change just on the off chance that you secretly mean we're genetically engineering the salmon so that i can have more salmon because that's my favorite thing i'm sorry to tell you we're not genetically engineering the salmon <sighs> i really Boy. hope you buy the book anyway <laughs> Well, it sounds like you've got a, a start for your next book, Jeannie, although the one of the things that it's it's funny because you're dealing with eternal questions and topic and the topicality of these issues. Right before we started talking, I was just finishing an, an article discussing the die off of sturgeon, not salmon, in the San Francisco Bay last year due to the red tides early in the spring oh, yes. caused by fertilizer runoff and the drought constant. Queerly enough, the drought concentrates the runoff. Who knew? Uh, obviously, the scientists and that the first thing we need to do is stop all non-catch and release sturgeon fishing. And there's a big fight over that. And it's, oh, salmon, sturgeon. Caviar comes from a virgin sturgeon. Virgin sturgeon's a very fine fish. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> I lived it for six years in D.C. And the problem there is that the oysters in um, Chesapeake Bay were once a major, major, major industry. And then the bay got so polluted that that industry went away. And now it's getting cleaned up a little bit. It be, How humans interact with their environment. So they're all important. We will put links to the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Nancy, thank you so much. I am deeply honored that you could be with us today. Like I said, you're one of my favorite science fiction writers of all time. Well, thank you, Jeannie. It's been lovely to, to be interviewed. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just bought three books that I didn't know. <laughs> I am so happy. Well done. Oh, I must go read them. Um, Dan, have you, did you do radio? You have a real radio voice. Doesn't he just? Not commercially, but yes, I actually have trained and I do uh, Civic Light Opera locally, Gilbert and Sullivan occasionally. Oh, Thank I you. love Gilbert and Sullivan. It is, it is so fun. We could spend another hour. We didn't even talk about your writing and your teaching of writing and and. Maybe, Nancy, we could suck up and you'll come back and do it again with us. I'd be glad to do it again. This has been fun. You would not believe some of the interviews that I do. <laughs> oh. The first one was about two or three years ago when the interviewer began by asking, so, Nancy, is this your first novel? Oh, dear God. Oh, God. I thought, you know, one minute on Google before you interview somebody. Or maybe your website or, you know, any publisher's that. website. I got to say, I'm in total awe how how you get because of your writing, because of your intellect and your ability. I, I'm going to say it again to handle fourth graders. You you don't just read science books. You go get information out of scientists and the astronauts. That is wonderful. I do. I collect scientists the way some people collect butterflies. And I have some microbiologists I can send emails to and saying, what about this? And that helps a lot. I bet. I bet. Anyway, let me read the end part just so that I can say that I've done it here. 
You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro music and exit music are both by Michael Engberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on manyhatsmusic.com. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, Arm Street, and Science. And hey, thanks for listening. There, I said it. I'm sorry, I thought you'd already read this out.